Hans Christian Andersen's story of the emperor's new clothes tells of an emperor who was very fond of appearance and of clothing. So when certain clever philosophers, who were actually con men, offered to weave him a rare and costly garment, he was quite receptive to their offer. He especially liked their promise that the garment would be invisible to all but the wise and pure in hearts. The delighted emperor commissioned this new clothing at great cost, and the conmen sat before empty looms and pretended to be weaving new clothing. Soon the emperor's curiosity became such that he sent his chief minister to see how things were going. Seeing no cloth on the busy looms, and not wanting to be thought unwise and impure in hearts, the official returned with a report about the fabulous beauty of the cloth. After a time, the weavers asked for more money. Again, the emperor became impatient, sending his second chief minister, who returned with an even more enthusiastic report. Next, the emperor went himself, and though he too saw nothing, he did not want to appear stupid, so he proclaimed the clothing excellent and beautiful. Finally, on the day of the grand parade, the conmen dressed the emperor in his nakedness and then skipped town. The emperor paraded before his, before his people, all natural. The whole populace joined in praising this beautiful new clothing, lest they too be thought to be fools. Thus, the absurd parade continued until in a moment of quietness, a child was heard to say, the emperor has no clothes. At once, everyone knew the truth, including the emperor. One innocent but honest remark by a small child who did not know enough to keep his mouth quiet, it stripped away, that moment stripped away the hypocritical pretense of the entire nation. This poor emperor was blind to his greatest need to be clothed. The truth was all around him, and he was blinded to the truth. Perhaps today, the word of God will be like that small child, and God will pierce our hearts to open us to the blindness of our own hearts. I encourage you to, to receive God's word that way this morning. If you haven't done so yet, would you please turn to your copy of the scriptures or on your device to the book of Romans. We're working our way through, systematically, through the book that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it proclaims the undeserved, the unmatched, the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of chapter 3 today. And we've, we've divided the book into six main divisions. And we're looking at that second division, the heart of the gospel. It runs from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 4. And we've, we've kind of subdivided that to understand that the, that, that the heart of the gospel includes the righteousness of God being revealed through God's wrath. The righteousness of God is, is reigning with justice. And that's the, the, the section we're in right now. And that the righteousness of God is received by faith. We're going to get there. That's the good news that we're going to get to uh, in, a couple, in a few weeks. 
But right now we're considering the justice of God, how, it's, how, it's, how God reigns, his righteousness reigns with justice. Paul has unfolded for us how God is just with, his, with the Jewish people. He's talked to us about how God is just with his, with his faithfulness and how, and how the first part of chapter 3 explains that God is faithful. And now we're in this section about God's justice for a guilty human race. I mentioned last week that, the most, that most commentators acknowledge the courtroom feel to this passage, if you will. It has legal tones to it. Verse 9 can be labeled as the arraignment. Verses 10 through 17, the indictment. Verse 18, which we come to this morning, will be the motive. And then verses, uh, verses 19 and 20, the verdict. Listen for those tones, for those, that, that, that courtroom feel as I read God's word this morning. Follow along in your copy of Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin at verse number 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth, that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. Here's the motive. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever what now we know what things soever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This passage teaches us about God's justice for the guilty human race. Last week, we considered the fact that we are blinded to sin's inclusiveness. In other words, that we are all sinners, every one of us. We also, last week, considered the, the fact that we are not just all under sin, but we considered that we are blinded to sin's death. There is none righteous, not even one. No one understands naturally the things of God. No one seeks God naturally. All have actually naturally turned aside from the way of God. Everyone has become unprofitable. Nobody does good, naturally. Not even one human being. Sinners have throats that has a stench of an open grave. We naturally use our tongues to deceive. The poison of snakes, that the, 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 the harm and the poison of snakes is, is like is seen in our, in our words. Our mouths are naturally filled with curses and bitterness. We are naturally inclined towards murder. Our sinful ways, are, our, our ways are full of misery and ruin. Our natural path is not of peace. And we listened to all of those, uh, the depth of sin last week, and how Paul unfolded it for us in those 13 descriptions. And we sat through and, and listened to those last week in depth. And then we still went and lived this past week 
trying to convince ourselves that we're not really that bad or that others are worse than us. Unbelievable. It's only further proof that we are a hot mess. We are totally depraved. We are sinful all the way through. If we were to try to jump from England to Long Island, none of us are going to make it. None of us would even escape the, the, the ring of the bell towers in London. We would not get far. All of us would fall short. So today the passage continues about God's justice for the, for the guilty human race. And Paul identifies the motive for our sinful ways and the results of our or the verdict for us as human beings. Christian, as you contemplate these verses today, and hopefully in the coming days and through this week, be keenly reminded of your propensity towards the path of sin. And also be reminded of God's intervention, as Pastor Josh read from Ephesians 2 this morning. But God. Who was, who was great in mercy because of his love towards us. Because of God's grace, God intervened. Be reminded of that. If you gather this morning, if you're watching online this morning, and you've never yet placed your faith in Jesus, as you hear these verses, as you hear this, this explained this morning, you should ask yourself, what am I hoping will justify me before a holy God? You see, all of us are guilty. All of us are blind to our guilt before God. All of us look to justify ourselves. We see then in verse 18, first of all this morning, that we are blinded to sin's motive. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about all the people that he just referenced in the 13 descriptions of being sinners. He's talking about the human race. There is no fear of God before the eyes of any human being that comes into this world. This is a quote from Psalm 36, verse 1 that says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, to the wicked deep in his hearts. There is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God before the eyes of a sinner. It's not talking primarily about being scared of God. Although there is an element to that. It's talking about reverencing God. It's talking about having an, a reverential awe for who God is. We humans don't naturally have a sense of God's greatness. A sense of God's glory. We don't naturally come to this world being awed by who God is. We don't naturally give him glory that he is due. And failing to give God the glory that he is due is the actual motive behind all of our sinful actions. When Paul says there is no fear of God before the eyes of sinners, he's furthering his case. He's, he's continuing to establish his argument that the Jew is as much under the wrath of God as the Gentile is. The Jews readily acknowledged that the Gentiles did not fear God. But the Jews were often blinded to the reality that they, too, often lived without a fear of God before their eyes. Friends, one of the scariest realities of our world is to have no fear of God before your eye. 
Having no reverence to God, for God, of God, is a motive to all of our sin. So what does it look like to not have a fear of God before our eyes? In the Garden of Eden, there ceased to be a reverential awe for God. So the first humans took of the fruits. They sinned against God because they had no fear of God before their eyes. They were deceived. In Noah's day, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No fear of God before their eyes, so they scoffed God's warning. In the days of Samuel and Eli, there was no fear of God before the eyes of Eli's sons. So the scriptures say they made themselves vile. In the days of Hosea, there was no fear of God before the eyes of Gomer, so she was unfaithful. In the days of Christ, the Pharisees had no fear of God before their eyes, so they continued at their attempts to justify themselves through their own works, through the things that they could do with their hands. So century after century after century, every human being has, has had no fear of God before their eyes. It's not just a generational thing or a particular century. It's individually. Each of us have failed to have a fear of God before our eyes. It's looked different in each case. In early American days, it looked like men and women who had no fear of God before their eyes when they subjected fellow image bearers to slavery based on the color of their skin. On January 22nd of 1973, it looked like seven Supreme Court justices ruling to make it legal to murder babies because those justices had no fear of God before their eyes. In 2020, it looks like women who are exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with passion with one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error because these men and these women do not have the, do not have the fear of God before their eyes. So ask yourself this question. What did it look like for you? What did it look like for me to have no fear of God before our eyes at certain points last week? Ignoring God's instruction that sexual relations are to be within the confines of marriage? No fear of God before our eyes. Disrespect to those in authority, governments, church, family. Practicing bias because of racial or generational differences. Consumption of, of products or medicines in ways that are sinful. Conversations that fail to reflect loving, hoping all things. Or conversations that are sinfully critical of others. Coveting the situations or the possessions of other people. Anger at others for their sins against you. Discontentment with the lot, the life situation that God has ordained for you. You see, if we have no fear of God before our eyes, there are all kinds of things that we find ourselves in. You see how it works? Whenever we commit sin, we are motivated to do so by the reality that we are not fearing God. Friends, there is all kinds of evidence in our world of people living with no fear of God before their eyes. But that should not be true of Christ followers. We should fear the Lord our God. We have seen the light. We have been moved from darkness into his marvelous light. 
I'm going to give you five scripture references right now. Write one of them down to carry with you this week as you face temptations, when you're, when you're tempted to not have the fear of God before your eyes. Pull out this verse, memorize it, meditate on it as you're faced with temptations to sin. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And Proverbs chapter 8, verse number 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. When you are confronted with temptation this next week, ask yourself, am I choosing to fear God? Do I have the fear of God before my eyes? When you converse with your kids, remind them, train them to fear God. When your spouse is about to say or do something or make a decision that is, that is sinful in a loving way and with tones of humility in your voice, remind them to have fear of God before their eyes. Pray for God to regularly remind you that you default to not fearing Him because you have remaining sin. Ask God to foster a healthy fear of Him before your eyes so that you may live to His glory and not to your own. We are blinded to sin's inclusiveness, that we are included as sinners. We are blinded to the depth of our sin. And we are often blinded to the motive of our sin. There is no fear of God our eyes. Paul closes this section by reminding us that we are blinded to sin's verdict. Look at verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law, is the knowledge of sin. These two verses serve as a summary of what's been happening since chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul wrote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's about the wrath of God against those who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So the Apostle Paul works, has worked through the righteousness of God, He's worked through the justice of God, how God is not partial, how God judges Jews and Gentiles, and that anything that we do cannot save ourselves. Then he lays out this conclusion in verse number 19. Now we know. The law speaks to those who are under the law. The very oracles of God the Jews were recipients of prove that nobody can boast in one's salvation. Paul, has, Paul says, I've proved that all come short of the glory of God, that all are sinners. Whatever the law says, it ends with the verdict that we are all guilty before God. And then he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Again, re reflecting 
uh, into the courtroom setting. Imagine a defendant who has no more to say in response to the, all the charges that he faces. He shuts his mouth. They are quiet, silent, after all these charges have been read. I was thinking about this in terms of family the other day. Having children is an interesting ride, right? It's one of God's tools to, to keep us humble. And if you don't have kids, I take it that that means you don't have a pride problem. And if you have four or five kids, well then, okay, fill in the blanks. Just kidding, don't email me, email me about that this week. I'm just kidding about that. Early in our marriage, Tara and I would, would have discussions. You ever, ever had a discussion? Addressing frustrations with each other. And sometimes it was like, you know, really early in our marriage, we'd be talking about stuff and she'd be trying to communicate to me and I'd be trying to communicate to her and about, not about the issue of what the discussion was about, but about each other, like about, you know, what was so frustrating. And, uh, you know, she'd be saying something until she was blue in the face and I'd be saying something until I was blue in the face, all in a godly way, I'm sure. But we just couldn't communicate what, what the other, what, you know, what was frustrating about the other person. We were blinded to what, how we were frustrating to the other person. 17 years now, we've had Peyton, and we've had Elise around for 11 years now, and we have family conversations about, con about frustrations, and sometimes one of my kids will respond in a certain way to a conversation, and I'm like, that's what she was telling me all those years ago that I was, so what she said about, Wah! and it's like, it must have been true. And the only response, silence, right? I did it. Now my eyes have been opened. I see, yeah, I've been, I was doing it. I've been doing it all along. You big idiot, John. In God's courtroom, he is judge who hands down a verdict. But first, he presents the evidence. He says, what then, are we better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Silence. We cannot respond to all of this evidence with anything other than silence. Our mouths are stopped. We are guilty before God. Paul tells the Romans, and he tells us that we can put an end to all of the argument about this once and for all. We are guilty before God. He wanted to silence, he, he wanted to silence the kind of Pharisee that Jesus was talking about in Luke 18 that we read about this morning. Approaching God should be done like this, like the publican. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I also think about the Old Testament man, Job. He was a big talker. Job had experienced some unfathomable tragedies, and he wanted to talk to God and to present his case. But when Job was in God's presence and God spoke, Job put his hand over his mouth. 
listen to this from Job chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job suddenly had a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, and he covered his mouth so that he would not speak foolishly. Isn't this what we read of in, in Isaiah chapter 6? And I, when he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I'm a man who is undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Guilty people shut their mouths. How do you know if someone is truly a Christian? Has their mouth been shut to the glory of God? Have they stopped pointing to their own actions and simply looked to Jesus? Have you stopped speaking, friend? Have you been silent before God? In other words, have you stopped trying to justify yourself before God? Has there been a time in your life where you said, where you said God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Maybe you, you have not yet been born again. I want to pause right here. I, I give, this, give an invitation every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to be born again. Probably most of us who gather kind of default into thinking that this weekly invitation is for new people to harvest, or guests, or, or children, or people who haven't been gathering with us for long. But everyone who can hear my voice this morning should consider this invitation today as fresh. If you have no assurance that you have a fear of God before your eyes, if you have no assurance that you are indeed a child of God, whether you've attended hundreds of times or a few times, I invite you, I encourage you, to be born again, to call upon the name of the Lord, and to be saved. Here I've been preaching about being blind, but even raising our awareness to our blindness isn't sufficient. We need the Spirit of God to convict us, to draw us to God Himself. Paul says that the whole world may become guilty before God. We know from Proverbs that there's a way that seems right to a man but the end of that way is death. Or we can read from Romans chapter 6. We'll get to that in, in weeks or months ahead. But when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We are all guilty and deserving of death. Paul goes on, he says, For by works of the law will no human being be justified. You see, their knowledge of the law wasn't going to help them eternally. He says, for the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We come to know sin, become aware of sin through the law. There is no way anyone could be saved by keeping the law because we wouldn't be able to do that. The law was given for a different reason, that we would know what sin looks like. Later in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul will say, what then shall we say, that, that the law of sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law reveals. The law shows us. It defines our sin. The law shines a spotlight on our sin. It pulls our sin out into the open. The primary purpose of God's law was not behavior modification. The primary purpose of the law was to show us that we are rotten to the core. 
The law unmasks us, if you will. Friend, do not be deceived. Do not be fooled into thinking that your good deeds are going to be good enough to satisfy God's demands. They will not be. Are you walking around your own kingdom naked? Are you fooled into thinking that you are justified by God for something that you have done? Are you blind to sin's inclusiveness? Are you blind to the depth of your own sin? Are you blind to sin's motive, having no fear of God before your eyes? Are you blind to sin's verdict that the whole world has become guilty before God? Be awakened to your spiritual destitution apart from God's intervention. This passage is not for only for unbelievers and being called to repentance. This is for us as Christ followers as well, because we forget how sin works. We gather like this to be reminded of how sin works and, of what God, and be reminded of what God has done because of how sin works. We forget how we began this life as guilty human beings. We forget that it took God Almighty sacrificing His only Son in order to redeem us. And when we forget all of that, we move back towards a sinful nature that we have not yet been delivered, had not been yet been delivered from. So be reminded on this Lord's Day. You cannot have the righteousness of God simply by accomplishing good works. You cannot have the righteousness of God apart from God working for you. As you have come before the judge of the whole earth, the evidence has been stacked against you. The just evidence has been stacked against you by a just judge. There is nothing that you can do other than be silenced. You are indeed guilty before God. Your only hope, your only hope is that the judge will show grace to you and offer you a pardon. You cannot be pardoned from the dreadful ways of your sin by accomplishing something in your own efforts. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can give you a pardon in the courtroom of God. And Jesus has offered his blood for your pardon. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have seen in your grace a way for us to be redeemed back to you. God, we recognize that you are the judge of the whole earth and that the whole human race is guilty before you because of our sin. Now, we thank you this morning that you have offered us pardon through the blood that has been shed for us by your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. I pray this morning that if there's an individual who is hearing this sermon, who has not yet been born again, that they would recognize that before you, they are guilty. I would pray, God, for that individual, that they would also recognize and understand that you have provided a way for them to be pardoned through the blood of Christ. They would call upon you today and be saved. Father, I pray for us as your children who have already been pardoned through Christ, that we would take the truths of these verses and that we would turn it into worship of, of you and that it would, that it would swell within our hearts of praise and that our mouths that, are, that have formerly been, been full of curses and bitterness 
would now be full of praises of worship to you who have done such great things for us. God, we thank you that our paths are no longer filled with misery and ruin, but our path is toward a promised land to be with you forever and ever in glory. God, we thank you that once when we were blinded and we had no fear of God before you, now you have opened our eyes and you have revealed to us your glory so that we may fear you and walk before you and live for you out of thanksgiving for what you have done for us. Help us to do that this week. Help us as, as, as your children to live to the praise of your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.